And if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 23. Uh, We're continuing our study in the book of Acts and will be for a good little while still. As you're turning to Acts 23, let me ask you, I'll ask you a question which has to be one of the most frequently asked questions of our culture. How you doing? How you doing? Or maybe the second would be, uh, how's it going? I know most of us ask and answer those questions with very little care or contemplation. Most of us really mean how you doing or how's it going as a greeting, not really a question. We might be surprised if someone gives us more than a one-word answer. We hear fine, okay, great. If you give me 12 sentences, I know not to ask you next time. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it works, right? Uh, no, that's not true. But, but really, we do think of those sayings and those questions without much thought. What I'm after here is not that you actually give them more thought as they're used as greetings or as people ask you here and there. Uh, I'm not after us getting longer in our answers when we're asked those questions. But I ask you this morning to just actually ponder the question and answer it for yourself. How are you doing? How is it going? What comes to mind? I wonder if we could tally our answers together, how different our answers would be. I wonder how many categories of life would be represented. I wonder if maybe you thought of the car ride here as you answered the question because it didn't go so well. Uh, Maybe you thought of physical pain or sickness that you're going through or financial struggles or financial abundance. Maybe it's a good year for you and your business. Maybe you thought of lack of sleep or a busy next week. Maybe you thought of the government and politics. Maybe you thought of North Korea or the Olympics. You're coming off the high of, you know, a good gold medal in the men's curling and still a good time, huh? Maybe you thought of marriage or kids. Maybe some kids in here thought of their school grades. Maybe you you bombed a, a test recently or have a big paper coming up. Or maybe you thought of how you're doing spiritually. Maybe this is a bad, it's been a bad week or month or season for you spiritually. But regardless of the category, I suspect that most of us, myself included, when I actually think and ponder, how am I doing? How is it going? I tend to think, how's it going for me and those that affect me? And I tend to think about what is pretty close to now. Today, how am I right now? How am I this week? How is it going in this season of life? And those answers to those questions are not always wrong. Sometimes we need that kind of close-up analysis. But what if we more frequently and more instinctually stretched out our horizons, thought bigger picture? How am I doing? What if our first thoughts were not just me and mine and here and now? The Bible teaches us this. Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated, not on things of the earth. 
or 2 Corinthians 4. We look not to the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. The things which are seen are temporary. The things which are unseen are eternal. Now, verses like those can feel to me, at times, to be somewhat otherworldly. To be something like a, an ideal that is really ultimately unattainable in this world. But the guy who wrote those lines actually did a pretty good job of living them out. The Apostle Paul taught this perspective of eternity and unseen, and he modeled it pretty well. Not because he was afforded some serene lifestyle of religious meditation atop a lofty, beautiful mountain. No, he knew suffering. He faced seriously hard circumstances. And so we pick up in Acts 23 today with the great Apostle Paul in a dank Roman prison. And over the last couple of days in Luke's telling of the Acts story, the Apostle Paul has been threatened more than once. He's been beaten by a mob. He's been punched in the face. He was about to be flogged. And lots and lots of people want him dead. And yet he's had the opportunity to talk to these people, to defend himself, and really to defend the Christ that he follows and represents. Almost a decade later, he'll write in a letter to Timothy when he's imprisoned again at a later time, 2 Timothy 2.9, he'll say, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. What great perspective. He saw that reality. And he also, 10 years before, had gotten a promise from Jesus. Acts 23, verse 11, the Lord stood by him in that prison and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So first, let's consider this encouraging promise. It's a promise in verse 11. This is the first of seven P words that I would suggest as we work through chapter 23, verse 11, all the way to chapter 24, verse 21. It's about 35 verses. That's a good bit, so we'll read each section when we come to it. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that we already covered verse 11. But if you've been with us in recent weeks, you also remember that this last one-fourth of the book of Acts the stories go together like links on a chain. There's a whole, but there are parts, and the parts are interlocked and overlapping. And so a couple of times now we've done this where we've gone so far in one Sunday, but then the next Sunday we just back up slightly because the rings overlap, the links overlap, and then we continue on. Now the chain of Acts 22 to 28, you could call it, from Jerusalem to Rome, Jesus' words in chapter 23, verse 11. The links are made up of various trials, accusations, and defenses for and by the apostle Paul. There will be ups and downs. There will be 
open doors and closed doors. The progress will seem to stall and then accelerate. But there's the big picture that Paul can keep firmly in mind. From Jerusalem to Rome, testify about me. Now, it's not just this promise that he can bank on. If you look back in chapter 9, verse 15, just after Paul's conversion, Ananias was told this to say to Paul. Jesus said it, Acts 9, 15, He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. Carrying the name of Jesus to the children of Israel? Check. You can find that in Acts 13 and 14. Carrying the name of Jesus to the Gentiles? Check. You can find that in Acts 16 to 20. Carrying the name of Jesus to kings? Well, that's what's in the works. That's what's up ahead. And it's, it's a given. It's sure. Paul doesn't know the particulars of how he gets from Jerusalem to Rome. He doesn't know how long it'll take. He doesn't know how hard or easy it'll be. He just knows what he has to do, testify. And he knows how far it'll go. As I said last week... You and I haven't been given this kind of special insight. We don't really know if we'll live longer than today, let alone you will live until you get to this place on a map. So we're unlike Paul in that he had special insight from the Lord. But every Christian is like Paul in that we're all called to testify wherever we are, that God is sovereign over where we are, that he'll be with us to the end, and he'll see us through to that end whenever that is. We can all bank on that. Secondly, there's a determined plot. Just hours after Paul received that great promise, unbeknownst to Paul, but not us the readers, there is a reinvigorated determination to see Paul dead. A determined plot. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. This is the third time in a week that some have intended or wanted to kill Paul. And the intensity and determination is turned up to 11 here. Forty men make a vow not to eat or drink anything until Paul is dead. They've already hatched the plan. The religious leaders ask the Romans to, to, to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin. that They might question him again as they did in the first half of chapter 23. And as they bring him from the fortress down to the Sanhedrin, there out in the open, they will lie in ambush and kill him. Their vow to not eat or drink until Paul is dead shows you just how committed 
just how urgent this was for them. And it shows you also their confidence to be able to get the job done. It should remind us of another plot 25 years before in Jerusalem when the religious leaders plotted together to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. It would have seemed that Thursday night as they arrested him in the garden that they were well on their way. It would have seemed Friday when Jesus hung on a cross, crucified and breathed his last. It would seem as though they won. But Sunday's coming, right? And Jesus is risen and he's alive, and he wins, not them. And this was God's plan all along. He was to be a sacrifice and be resurrected. Psalm 2, remember this? That the rulers of this world conspire against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. He will have his way. He will install his king. Well, that uniquely applies to King David and his sons, and particularly to the greatest Davidic son, Jesus. But by extension, it also applies to those who follow Jesus. Acts 4, when the church is persecuted, they cite Psalm 2 as explaining what's going on. Just as they persecuted Jesus, they're persecuting the followers of Jesus. The principle of Psalm 2 is still at work, both with the opposition against the Lord and his anointed and his people, and the futility of that opposition, ultimately. And so, it was futile for Jesus. It'll be futile for Paul. Paul was destined for Rome God's promises are sure. The purposes of the Lord will not be thwarted. But how? How will Paul get from Jerusalem to Rome? Well, thirdly, amazing providence. He'll first have to be protected from this plot. And there is amazing providence here. We saw last week how Paul was rescued in surprising and strange ways. How Roman guards in a Roman fortress and Paul's Roman citizenship were the means by which he was rescued from trouble. Well, God today, we'll see, continues to show the variety and the intricacy of his providence and his protection. So look down at verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring you this young man, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for they are, for they are more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And they are now ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Well, you might not have known that Paul had a sister. 
And that, that sister had a son, so Paul had a nephew. We really don't know a whole lot about Paul's family. Maybe this is about it. We don't know how old the nephew was. We don't know how exactly he received word that this plot was being hatched. It could be as simple as him overhearing two of these 40 assassins whisper about it. Or maybe one of these 40 assassins had a son who was friends with Paul's nephew and trickled down the, the vine it went. You know how these things work. Any one piece of the puzzle could have a, a thousand ways for it to come about. And that's why it's so fascinating to look back after momentous developments and see how it went down, to see how the dominoes have fallen, and to consider what if. What if this hadn't happened? What if Paul's family wasn't in Jerusalem at this time? What if the nephew didn't happen to receive the word of the plot? What if the nephew heard it but didn't care? And he thought, yeah, get old Uncle Paul. I don't like him anyway. He went crazy. What if the centurion refused to hear the word of a nephew, a boy? What if the centurion refused to bring it to the tribune? And what if the tribune cared a little less about his prisoner's safety than he did? If any one of those goes the other way, then maybe we have a different outcome. Now, God can get the job done however he pleases. It seems like he picks a different path with slightly different tools every single time. It's like guessing where a lightning bolt's going to go. But Job tells us God directs the lightning bolts. And he directs our steps. He, it's his plan. He, he, he directs not just the big things, but the little as well. So it's so fun to look back in life and consider the variety and the specificity and the intricacy of how he gets his job done and how he puts us where he wants us. In the case of the Exodus, the second book of the Bible, God uses plagues and the parting of the Red Sea to get the job done. In the case of 1 Samuel 17, he uses a young shepherd boy in a slingshot. In Acts 12, God brought an earthquake to bust Peter out of prison. And here in Acts 23, God choose, chooses to use that most peculiar of instruments, nephews. I'm kidding. I don't have a nephew, so I can say that. Occasionally, God chooses to use the miraculous. More often, he chooses the mundane. He uses providence. That's what we call it. Providence is his sovereign, hidden orchestration of events for our provision and protection. You might say about now, well, yeah, providence went pretty well for Paul. His had a happy ending. My life hasn't gone that way. Nothing seems to work out. I don't even have a nephew like me. Well, yeah, but surely Paul could have listed a lot of things that went wrong or were hard. See 2 Corinthians 11 if you want a resume of his suffering. I mean, he'd been beaten. At this point, he'd been stoned and left for dead. He'd been maligned both outside the church, no surprise, but also inside the church. Just the travel, the, the, 
the boat rides, the walking, being, having things stolen, he, he talks about. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Why did God do it this way then? Why does it feel like we're constantly on the brink? Well, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He says God puts the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. These earthen, fragile bodies. That's where the gospel resides. The gospel is a treasure, and it's in a jar of clay. Paul can speak of both of these. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't living in a Pollyanna world. He wasn't pretending that suffering isn't suffering. However, he constantly had a, an arm out to eternity and to the otherworldly and to God's perspective. So Christian, yes, you have trials. I do too. We should be honest about the, the difficulty of our trials and not pretend they're not there. But we should also step back. We should ponder all the good, all the provision, all the protection, all that we don't deserve. Everything that isn't hell is of grace for sinners. So Christian, we can trust his promises. We can know that he'll do us good. We can see trials actually as his pruning in our lives. It produces patience, James 1 says. It produces endurance, Romans 5 says. We would be less godly and more sinful if we did not have the trials that we've had. It's amazing providence. For Paul, the amazing providence was a, a nephew overhearing a plot, telling Uncle Paul, getting a centurion, to take the boy to the tribune, and the tribune responding swiftly. All that led to this, number four, Roman protection. It is some swift and serious protection that only the Romans could do. Look at chapter 23, verse 23. Then he called the two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. With this plot of 40 going on in Jerusalem, Paul has to get out of town and get out, get out of town quickly and secretly and safely. So the tribune orders 470 soldiers to this mission. 70 horses, 200 spearmen. Likely the men on foot didn't go the whole way, which was 35 miles. They would probably see Paul out of town, then head back, and then the horses can take on with a nice trot as they head to Caesarea. It's a scene that's like ripe for Hollywood, isn't it? It feels like we've, we've probably seen this in movies before where, where, where there's the cloak of darkness and then there's the, the, the watchful darting eyes of the soldiers knowing that trouble could lurk around any corner. There's the, the thud, thud, thud of the horse's hooves as they begin to pick up speed. 
You might wonder if this is excessive or perhaps even made up. 470 men to escort Paul 35 miles. Well, consider Paul's Roman citizenship. That the tribune, remember, he didn't know Paul was a Roman citizen, so he didn't treat him as a Roman citizen, and he could be in trouble for that if anyone finds out. I'm sure he thinks, get Paul safely out of town so that no one comes around sniffing about this. Keep in mind that the Romans just generally did things big. And consider that these were days of serious unrest in and around Jerusalem. It didn't take much of a spark to set off a powder keg of building tensions in these days. And so he wants Paul safely out of town. And again, we can marvel even at these details with God's providence in view with Roman extravagance and political unrest and the tribune's carefulness to cover his butt about his abuse of the apostle Paul. That's all conspiring, you could say, or a perfect mix of ingredients for Paul to be escorted to Caesarea like he's in Fort Knox. Fifth, he's being passed along. He's being passed along. Where is Paul being moved to? Well, it's not just out of town and not just to safety. He's going to the governor, Felix. He's moving up the food chain. The org chart means that, means that the tribune has sent Paul upward, not laterally or down. Verses 26 to 30 record a letter that the tribune wrote to Felix the governor, sending Paul to him and explaining what's going on. I'll let you read that letter on your own later. I'll only point out a couple of things about it. Number one, notice when you do read it that the tribune paints a bit of a rosy picture as he recounts what happened with this prisoner. He reorders the events. He says to the governor, I discovered he was a Roman citizen, so I stepped in to rescue him from the mob. Well, the careful reader of Acts knows not exactly. It was only after he was imprisoned, when you were about to flog him, that you found out Paul was a Roman citizen. But you can't blame him, especially as a Roman tribune, for painting himself in the best possible light. And nevertheless, the essence of what he says is basically true. And that's the second thing to point out for when you read it. Notice that there was indeed such an investigation surrounding Paul that the tribune was really concerned to get to the bottom of whatever commotion was going on around Paul. And notice, despite several attempts, in, in, in coming from different angles to get to the bottom of it, he couldn't find any guilt. So verse 29 in the letter it says, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, being charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Now this is a significant statement. And it's not the only one in the book of Acts. There are two more declarations of Paul's innocence by Roman officials. In chapter 25, it'll be on the lips of the governor Festus. In chapter 26, it'll be on the lips of King Agrippa. They all declared they can find no guilt with Paul, and he doesn't deserve death or imprisonment. You see what Luke's doing? Luke is 
of course, just recording history, and they said it, so that's why it's there. But he's also making the case that Paul is innocent. This is the finding of multiple Roman officials. It's in letters. It's on the lips of high-ranking men. They all agree. They won't agree forever. Eventually, emperor, the emperor will put Paul to death. But for now, it states the case. It makes the case. This man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And, and, and the length at which this is drawn out, in the repetition of these trials and accusations and defenses, which really can get laborious in Acts 22 to 28. I'm feeling it. I don't know if you are. I'll be glad when we're done with Acts 28. I will. Because they're similar. They're familiar. It it feels like, didn't we hear this already? But there's purpose in the repetition. This man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. And on up the food chain, those sentiments go. Remember Acts 9.15. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul is passed along. And each time he'll get a new audience. And each time he'll have a new opportunity. He's passed along for various reasons. I mean, from, you know, danger in Jerusalem, then he's off to Governor Felix. And then two years later, the the governorship is handed off to Festus, and he has to defend himself there. And then later, King Agrippa will come and visit Festus, and Festus will say, hey, can you help me out with this difficult case? I got this guy named Paul. And then King Agrippa will get involved. And then Paul will cite his Roman citizenship in appeal to Caesar. And then he'll be taken to Rome. It's all part of God's glorious plan. The word of God is not bound. Six, before we get to the word that Paul speaks, we have a bogus prosecution. Chapter 24, at this point, Felix the governor has Paul in custody and he will hold a trial as soon as Paul's accusers arrive and state their case. And five days later, they arrive. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, really a lawyer, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he'd been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, and here he's addressing the governor, since through you we enjoy much peace, and by the way, note the flattery, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way, in every way, we accept this with all gratitude. In reality, the Jews hated Felix, and he was famously cruel and nasty. But you don't begin your speech that way, hence the flowery language. Verse 4, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, and notice the falsehoods. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. 
The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. These were bogus charges, just as it was with Jesus when he was tried. His accusers lied, they twisted, they invented, they stirred up others. It's sad. It's the mark of their stubborn unbelief. It's an indication of their ongoing rejection of Messiah, the one they said they were waiting for. It's Psalm 2 playing out afresh. Psalm 2 is still playing out today in various ways. The kings, the people of this world conspire against the Lord and against his anointed and against his anointed's people. Do you know the name Jackie Hill Perry? Jackie Hill Perry is a 29-year-old African-American Christian poet. Uh, I think rapper as well. And she's outspoken about her past and her conversion to Christ and how God saved her out of a same-sex lifestyle. She was invited to speak at Harvard this last week. And you can imagine how it went. There were protests, petitions for her not to come. People said she's a bigot, a homophobe. She said, they said that she was harmful. They interrupted her when she spoke. Oh, this experience is just the latest. This is just the latest headline that would come to mind if we racked our brains a little bit more. It's not the last. It's not the worst. It probably will get worse. And so we shouldn't be surprised. Christians even today shouldn't be surprised when they are maligned, misrepresented, hated, opposed. We shouldn't be surprised if one day it gets worse than that. But for Paul, his arrest and imprisonment and trial and bogus charges led to, seventh, a new pulpit. <laughs> a new pulpit. What do I mean by pulpit and why do I have it in quotation marks? Well, because Paul doesn't literally have a pulpit in front of him as he begins his defense in chapter 24, verse 10. But he does have another platform he has another opportunity to proclaim. The defendant of a Roman trial was allowed to make defense. And it's as if the Lord just keeps wheeling pulpits up to his apostle for him to speak. Long ago, it was in synagogues. There were opportunities to speak there. Or at the Areopagus with the Greek philosophers. And Paul had a, had a pulpit, not, not literally, but metaphorically. It's, it's as if, well, here it is. The Lord has wheeled this up and let's go. And he speaks. There was a time when he found himself in a little prayer garden in Philippi. He spoke there. And one woman there praying came to faith and followed Christ. Here's what he says at this particular pulpit. Chapter 24, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. 
neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now we'll come back to these verses again at our Lord's Supper service this Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Remember, a chain with links, and so they overlap, and we'll probably keep doing this. But notice that Paul responded to the false charges. He cleared up lies. He said, I didn't start a riot in Jerusalem. In fact, they did. I was there for worship. I wasn't even disputing with anyone. I was at the temple bringing alms. I didn't bring anything impure into the temple. But he does more than just clear up the falsehoods. He's also making his case implicitly with these things that that Christianity is not a revolt. It's not a group of insurrectionists. They're not anti-government. They are peaceable people. They are peaceful people. They are not troublemakers. In a day when, again, when so many were either very passionate about a revolt against Rome or very paranoid about the next revolt against Rome, you'd have to make this clear. You'd have to clear it up. And Romans does this, and 1 Peter does this, and of course the book of Acts is doing it. Paul is implicitly saying Christianity is not a revolution. Well, it's a personal revolution for everyone who embraces it, but it's not, it's not a revolt. It's not anti-government. There are limits to how much Christians can follow the government. Acts 4 talked about that. You tell us not to speak about Jesus, well, we can't help it. Uh, so you do what you think is right, and we will obey God rather than man. There are limits to how much Christians can follow the government. But generally speaking, they are peaceful and peaceable and not insurrectionists. And then Paul gets to the nitty-gritty right in the middle with verses 14 to 16. He talks about following the way. That was the earliest self-designation of Christians. Christian was a label that was slapped upon Christians, like to make fun of them. Oh, little Christs. And then we kind of said, you know what? That works. We'll take that. Yeah, sure. Little Christ. That's a, that's a compliment. But the way was the earliest self-designation of the followers of Jesus. Because Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. We follow the way. And this way is not some newfangled thing. It's the fulfillment of God's plan. 
You see, he says in verse 14, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets. This isn't some crazy sect out of the backwoods of Nazareth. Remember, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what they said about Jesus. Well, here they say, ah, it's a sect of Nazarenes. No, they're not. They're not inventing a religion. This is the fulfillment of God's plan, the fulfillment of God's word. Like with this specific doctrine, verse 15, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Or verse 21, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm being judged. The resurrection of the dead is belief in the afterlife, heaven and hell, and the reuniting of our bodies and souls, whether we go to heaven or hell. It was taught in the Old Testament. Paul, as a Pharisee, believed it was taught in the Old Testament, even before he encountered Christ. But the resurrection lit that do- the resurrection of Christ lit that doctrine on fire. That changed everything. The resurrection of Christ made sense of and made possible what the Old Testament was hinting at regarding the end. A resurrection of the dead? They always believed that. But now that Jesus has been resurrected, you can put the pieces together. The last day has begun. He's the first fruits of that final resurrection. Because he was risen, we will be risen. 1 Corinthians 15 puts all this together and thinks of what if it wasn't this and what if it wasn't that? No, no, no. They are together. There's a resurrection of Christ and there is a resurrection at the end. And Christians have great hope. And really this is in essence what we believe about Jesus. This is one way to preach the gospel. In Acts 4.2 it says they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see that? They were unpacking the resurrection from the dead in Jesus. The resurrection of the dead in Jesus means that there is an end coming. There is a judgment. It's for the just and the unjust. You can't get out of it. He knows who's just and unjust. It'll be a parting of the ways. But there's a new beginning. It's not just an end that's coming. It's a new beginning for those who have hope in Jesus. There's hope. There's hope beyond this life. This isn't it. So if you're not a Christian, I wonder what, what are you hoping for? What are you anchoring your life and eternity in? I mean, how, how broad can your horizon get? Right? I said before, think big picture. Not just me, not just now. How big does it get for you? I hope it's not painful when I die. I hope it's not embarrassing at my funeral. I hope I get 80 years. I hope I have enough to retire. I mean, what? You see, the Christian has one arm locked on to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the other reaching forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And when we're thinking straight as Christians, it feels pretty dang secure and lovely 
despite a bunch of junk right here and now. For the Christian, how you doing? Well, I get a lot of migraines. But Jesus is coming back and he's going to give me a new body that doesn't get migraines and it will be that way forever and ever. This life, with a lot of migraines, isn't really that long. Right? How you doing, Christian? Well, there's this tension in this relationship right now and uh, I think it's given me an ulcer. And, and you know You know what? In the end, Jesus will make a new heaven and new earth in which there is no tension or ulcers. There will just be peace. He is making a new heaven and new earth where they don't shut the gates at night because there's no threat. There's no worry. And it's going to be that way for good. It's not going to be that way until one of us messes it up. The resurrection of the dead, man, it's... It's glorious. It's mighty. And we know it's going to happen because Jesus was raised from the dead. If you don't believe that, then the resurrection of the dead is trouble. For the unjust, it means nothing but trouble, separation from God, punishment in his presence, away from the Lord, away from others, lonely, dark, pain. It's a righteous judgment whether you want to admit it or not. So I pray this morning that you are in Jesus, or as it'll say later in the text, faith in Christ Jesus. We'll see that this Wednesday. I pray you're not indifferent, which is how Felix responds. I pray you're believing and trusting in Jesus and joining with us in wanting him to return longing for it because life is hard but longing for it because he's good it'll be glorious we can't imagine it won't be charmin angels with harps on fluffy clouds which would be horrible we all know it won't be streets of gold which once you see them eh those are just our streets you see, the Bible describes heaven in such magnificent, magnificent symbol-laden ways because we can't even imagine what it would really be like to be there and to be with him. How's it going? Uh, yeah, just fine. Heaven's coming. Christian, I want to remind you of this thing called stations of life. We're all in a station. This came out of the Reformation, that whatever your circumstances are, this place you live, the people you live with, the neighborhood you're in, the job you have, the church you go to, that's your station. Whatever station God has you in, would you be more strategic? Would you think of it more as an assignment than you do? This current station may be not so, well, not as good as the last station. You might be wishing you could switch stations sometime in the future, but God has you where he has you right now, and it's an assignment. He's put a pulpit in front of you, and not a literal one. But what pulpits are in your life could you walk up to and say something? 
Or, or ask yourself this, when you have the floor, what do you want to talk about? I don't mean like giving a speech at a wedding. I mean, when, when you're having coffee with someone, or when you're on Facebook, or, or when you're texting someone, or when you meet someone new, or if you ever stand in court, What do you talk about when you have the floor? We see what Paul talked about, Jesus. He didn't get to Jesus in weird and obnoxious ways like, hey, Panera bread, you know what? Jesus is the bread of life. (laughs) But he did make a direct, conscious decision to get to Jesus. I pray for more of that for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we'll sing in just a minute, we say, oh, that mankind might taste and see the riches of your grace. Now, the the arms of love that encompass me would all the world embrace. We pray for those with us who don't believe in Jesus in this way yet. We pray perhaps even today as they sing this song, It would be their very first confession of Christ that they would say that Jesus is dear to sinners, that he scatters all their guilty fear and turns their hell into heaven. And may we, Christians, Lord, as we'll sing, may we proclaim you constantly, though earth and hell oppose And be bold to confess your glorious name before a world of foes. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word, for your church, for your grace. Help us to confess your name boldly in song now. Amen.